Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 30th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The value of digital technologies was highlighted by the EU Special Representative for Human Rights yesterday, allowing for reports from what were heretofore dark corners of the world to be brought to us in every other corner of the world. And to be appraised at the risks they face. They have also in recent weeks played an important role in the documentation of the violation of human rights and international humanitarian law. These comments were made by Eamon Gilmore, formerly the leader of the Labour Party in Ireland, now the EU's spokesperson on human rights. Just over a week ago, I visited the Polish border with Ukraine. I witnessed there the bravery and resilience of Ukrainian women activists escaping Putin's invasion. They are resolute in their desire to continue their work and we must help. And let us not forget the courageous human rights defenders in Russia and Belarus who are risking their lives and freedom by protesting against the war and the crackdown of civic states. For these brave people to get news to the rest of the world, the tool these days can sometimes only be the internet. We need to ensure that human rights defenders have connectivity and can enjoy online freedom of expression The EU Special Representative for Human Rights, Eamon Gilmore. Meanwhile, the news of a possible peace treaty reported by all media gives room for some optimism. Could this be the beginning of the end of the war? We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. We'll see if they follow through on what they're suggesting. There are negotiations that have begun today or not begun, continued today, one in Turkey and others. I at a meeting with the heads of state of uh, our four allies in NATO, France, Germany, uh, uh, the United States, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and Great Britain. And uh, there seems to be a consensus that uh, let's just see what they have to offer. We'll find out what they do. But in the meantime, we're going to continue to keep strong the sanctions. We're going to continue to provide the Ukrainian military with their capacity to defend themselves. 
and we're going to continue to keep a close eye on what's going on. The U.S. US President President Joe Biden. So for now, at least, uh, the war goes on and uh, the humanitarian crisis continues. What does that mean? Well, you heard Eamon Gilmore talk about his visit to the Polish-Ukrainian border a moment ago. In a subsequent interview with uh, the Irish Times, Mr. Gilmore said countries need to plan and prepare for dealing with refugees and that this is not going to be about weeks or months. He said that on that visit to Poland last week, he had seen that lots of the two million people who had fled Ukraine to that country were living with family and friends in spare rooms, but also in sports facilities. In Warsaw, he had seen an ice skating rink which now had 500 beds in the middle of it and that this was not sustainable in the long term. And we are looking at the long term, even if this conflict was halted, Amy Gilmore said in the morning, many towns and cities have been so substantially damaged that there's nowhere for people to return to. So what about the plan here? Well, tents, prefabs and emergency dormitory style units are part of the plan. The bill for providing accommodation, health and education to refugees will reach 1.7 billion this year. The costs for catering for refugees are to be met from €2.5 billion from the COVID reserve, but the cost overall is expected to reach €2.8 billion next year. This is according to internal figures from the government and the Irish Times is reporting today that that figure of €2.8 billion could ramp up significantly. Let's speak to Labour's spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and Eastmeath. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I think there's two messages from all of that. One is that we're going to spend an awful lot of money and the second is I'm not sure if the way we're spending that money is very prudent or fair for people who are looking for humanitarian support. That, that, that's right. Um, we, we've been looking, uh, myself and my Labour Party colleagues, for briefings from line ministers over the last week in terms of the preparedness of different government departments. I'll give you an example, uh, uh, Michael. Um, my, my colleague and Labour Party housing spokesperson, Senator Rebecca Moynihan, uh, contacted early last week the Minister for Housing uh, for a briefing, assuming that his officials will be prepared to brief opposition spokespersons on the housing demand and what the plans were between themselves and local authorities to provide accommodation. Uh, she was referred to the Department of Children, uh, being told by the Department of Housing that the Department of Children have overall responsibility in this regard. Uh, I've reached out, I've made contact myself uh, with the department's uh, eyeshadow, uh, and uh, it was only yesterday uh, through the media that we got information from the Department for Public Expenditure and Reform to say that uh, the estimate, at least, was that uh, the state would be spending um, upwards of €2.8 billion, Euros fulfilling our international obligations to the Ukrainian refugees who have started to come to Ireland and will uh, more than likely come in greater numbers over the next few weeks. Right. It's a, a lot of money. And how that money has been spent, I, I think, is questionable. If we're going to put 320 tents in Gormanston, uh, I, I don't know if that's money well spent, is it? Is that the best we can do? Well, well, well that, that's, that's two, two really good questions. Um, I, I spoke last week to um, local authority, some local authority chief executives who told me that the uh, only contact they would have had from the Department of Housing at that point in time uh, was to uh, identify bed and breakfast and hotel accommodation uh, and when that was exhausted then look at some other alternatives, community halls and so on. Now, whether that's appropriate or not is another day's work. That may be appropriate uh, in in the interim uh, over a very, very short period of time. And I know that local authorities, for example, are sourcing 
camp beds, but there's no absolutely no dignity in that for people who are fleeing a war-torn situation, fleeing mm. devastation in their own countries to come here uh, uh, and go into accommodation like that. But there's uh, not much hope that that, that that can improve in the short term, is there? I mean, if we're talking about 15 or maybe 20,000 refugees in the country at, at this stage, uh, it's it's certainly no more than that. Uh, and we are looking at the prospect of 100 or maybe 200,000 refugees. Well, I think what needs to happen in the first instance, Michael, is that the uh, Red Cross, with the support of the relevant state agencies, needs to uh, uh, wrap, wrap up uh, the, um, uh, uh, the the um, you know the response that excellent response that, that, that people have had signing up to the Red Cross program in terms of um, identifying rooms that might be available in their homes and standalone accommodation. Now, I know that the Red Cross have said that they want to prioritise standalone accommodation, and I understand that, but. Um, from those who I know who uh, have, have the capacity to be able to accommodate um, uh, people who are fleeing from Ukraine, uh, very little contact uh, has been received by the state agencies. Uh, they're anxious to try and um, provide the accommodation that they have to help Ukrainian families, and that has been very, very slow. And I don't think that the perfect should be the enemy <clears throat> of the good here. This is not peacetime. Uh, this is wartime in Europe, and the Irish people have that the response has been really incredible, and I've been at the front line of that myself. Mm. And the draw to South Loud and East Mead area, it really has. And what we need is a really more structured kind of response. We can deal with this as it stands at the moment. Um, my own view on this, and it's a personal view, we spoke uh, about this at our parliamentary party meeting uh, last week, uh, we probably will require, uh, we'll, we'll need to go towards the modular bills, prefabricated accommodation model very, very soon, and building um, appropriate units uh, on state and local authority mm. uh, land. And that's the question. Uh, where the do, 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 do you build them on the uh, army base in Gormanston or where do you find the land or, or do you uh, throw planning uh, permission rules out the window? Well, you know, on, on a temporary basis, um, that may be something. Remember, Michael, you know, we are in, in wartime in yep. Europe. This is not peacetime. Uh, and on a temporary basis, to, in order for us to address the needs of uh, our friends from Ukraine who are coming and fleeing mm. uh, their war-torn country. Well, if we uh, don't, that may very well be what, what yeah. is needed. If we don't, we'll be putting people in tents, uh, and it looks as though that may it's be necessary at least for a certain period of time. Uh, we'll hear just briefly what uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, had to say about uh, housing people in tents in Gormanston on Monday's programme. But as the numbers increase, we have to explore every option. Now, we haven't gotten to the stage where Gormanstown is in use or any other types of accommodation where you have, you know, we, we've seen pictures already in Poland where you have hundreds of camp beds essentially in large facilities mm. and people sleeping there. We haven't gotten to that stage yet. I can't tell you that we won't get to that stage. But your former leader, Eamon Gilmore, saying that that stage is a stage we don't want to get to and certainly not in the long term because it's not sustainable, it's not fair, it's not appropriate. It might not be ideal, it might not be exactly what we'd like for people but you know I have to keep going back to the fact the most important thing here is that people are safe and I take it uh, that you would agree with the last part of that statement uh, to a large degree that uh, we have to do whatever we can even if it's not ideal Jed Nash we do that, that's why you know the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of, of, of the good here and you know Ireland has not experienced this kind of um, situation for a, a long long time um, people around our own area here will of course have experienced in their own living memory situation where we w- welcomed uh, our uh, 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 friends from the nationalist community uh, in, in, in Belfast fleeing pogroms uh, and violence in the 19, late 1960s into the early 1970s. Mm. Uh, people remember that Gormanson Camp was used. Gormanson Camp was in a different situation at that point in time. 
um, you know, many people um, decided to go back, back uh, home to, to the north, and, and many people settled in the, in this area. Previous to that, it was um, we were welcoming refugees from Hungary uh, back in I think it was the, you know in the late nineteen fifties, um, and so we, we don't really have much of an experience of dealing with um, the scale uh, uh, in terms of program refugees. Um, you know, we welcomed people from fleeing from Syria and from Afghanistan over the last few years but nothing uh, of this scale and on our doorstep and we have a responsibility Michael uh, as EU members and as members of the international community as a mature sovereign wealthy state by, by international standards one of the wealthiest mm-hmm. countries uh, in the world to do everything we can to accommodate as many refugees as we can uh, in an appropriate uh, fashion Okay uh, what does that mean because the money is there and the money isn't there I mean people are saying where are we going to get all of this money from but as you say it's a very wealthy country do we need uh, a mini budget well, we needed a mini budget anyway, and I've been calling for that for some time to respond to the cost of living crisis that's been very acutely experienced, particularly by people who are on fixed incomes, people on low incomes, and people who are on middle incomes. Working families are finding it incredibly difficult to make uh, ends meet, and that's why we need more targeted supports for people who need the support most to meet the energy bills and meet the ever rising. Uh, food bills. Uh, I think government can't continue to run away from this. Uh, we need a structured response. We can't simply say on, on one day, well, it's going to be two and a half billion. The next day, it's going to be two point eight billion euro. I know that these are only estimates uh, at this point point in time, but the resources can be found, Michael, to deal with this. I mean, this pays into insignificance uh, compared to the challenge that, for yeah. example, Romania, a much poorer country uh, in in the European yeah. Union, or is Moldova. facing, yeah. um, or Moldova, it's indeed, which is in a very difficult, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. geopolitical situation, mm-hmm. given that. There is a, a certain perspective that, um, you know, over time, Russia may very well be looking at Moldova next. Uh, and we know some of the challenges that they have there with the breakaway Republic of Transnistria, which is very close to Russia. So uh, this is a very delicate, okay. very sensitive situation. And we have to fulfill our international obligations. All right. Let's, ta- obligations let's talk about diplomacy for a moment, if we can. Uh, we'll hear a little bit of what the Taoiseach had to say about expelling uh, diplomats yesterday. Uh, and under the 1961 Vienna Convention, um, Four senior officials of the Russian uh, embassy have been asked to leave the state uh, because their activities are not in accordance uh, with the international standards of diplomatic behaviour. I would have received security advice yesterday. I know the Minister of Foreign Affairs had also received security advice. I met yesterday in relation to this with our national security team. Um, And under Article 9 of the 1961 Vienna Convention, we have taken these actions. We nonetheless do believe that diplomatic channels between the Russian Federation and the state should stay open in the interest of us conveying uh, our abhorrence of the war uh, and maintaining diplomatic channels as a principle but also uh, to protect Irish citizens uh, in, in Russia. And now, Chad Nash, you don't uh, agree with keeping uh, those diplomatic channels open. You want the ambassador expelled. Well, we're in a, an extraordinary situation here. Um, remember, um, this this is... Um, a country that yesterday, in fact, um, wouldn't even accept the legitimacy of EU sanctions. And they said that in their statement, the Russian embassy yesterday. I mean, Ivana Bacic in her leadership second speech last week called uh, not just for the um, expulsion of the Russian ambassador in the context of the illegal war that his country is waging against an independent, sovereign, peaceful nation, but uh, as a start and understanding that it is often difficult to expel ambassadors when you're part of a wider European Union response, ideally the response would come collectively from the European Union uh, and synchronised all at the same time, choreographed in that way for maximum effect. But the reality is, and Ivana reminded uh, the teacher about this yesterday, he came back into the doll uh, in effect to respond 
to Ivana's question because at that very moment in time when Ivana was posing the question uh, of the expulsion of the Russian ambassador, uh, the Minister uh, for Foreign Affairs uh, and his team in the Department of Foreign Affairs had effectively called in uh, Ambassador Filatov and um, uh, uh, delivered the news to him that four um, four, four diplomats would, mm. would, would would be expelled, and that's based on Garda intelligence uh, and the security briefing. And, and apparently, there were received. spying. That would certainly um, be the implication uh, that is uh, being uh, th- th- made the out Russian the story. View, yeah, that, that's the view. I understand that. Um, uh, the Gardaí and uh, the security services more generally have taken actually over the last period of time. Russia, remember, has a very significant uh, diplomatic, and I use that term advisedly, footprint in Ireland. Why would a country uh, the size of Russia, um, and given the, the size of Ireland and the fact that there are, yes, there are important diplomatic relations, but they have not been particularly significant over the years, why would they have 31 diplomats in a large embassy? in Dublin, an embassy that they had, in, in fact, sought planning permission to extend uh, over the last few years, mm-hmm. and that permission was, was was denied. So if, uh, our party leader, Ivana Batrick, had called for, at the very least, the expulsion of some diplomats uh, as an expression of our solidarity uh, with the people of Ukraine and our abhorrence at the illegal war that's been waged by Putin in Russia, and okay. rather belatedly, uh, government have decided to do that. All right. Um, let's uh, just very, very briefly talk about uh, what would otherwise uh, be very big announcements uh, from uh, the government, a decision to automatically enrol people between 23 and 60 who earn more than €20,000 into a pension plan from 2024. Uh, and also sick leave uh, to be made uh, available 10 days uh, to all workers by 2026. Your thoughts on that as uh, the Labour Finance spokesperson? Well, well on, on sick pay, it comes two years on after the Labour Party had proposed uh, legislation to ensure that Ireland was no longer an outlier and that we in the EU uh, and that we had a statutory mandatory sick pay scheme where um, a, a proportion of people's wages would be paid directly to them by employers when they are sick. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing too as well that uh, they, the government have finally heeded the OECD's call made back in 2014 for uh, auto-enrolment. Again, we were an outlier in terms of pension provision and auto-enrolment system for workers. Three quarters of a million private sector workers in this country, Michael, have no um, private sector occupational pension provision uh, whatsoever. Um, and it's, it's welcome uh, more generally. We need to figure out a little bit more how this is going to work. I would be concerned, for example, on a, a long track record calling out the Irish pensions industry on the enormous fees that they charge uh, those who have private occupational pensions. Um, you can often lose uh, maybe three to uh, uh, 30 to 40% of actually what you put in uh, over the lifetime of a pension in fees alone and the charges accumulate over many, many years. I'm concerned, for example, that the cap on the fees in the Irish auto-enrollment system that will come into effect in 2024 is set at 0.5% and not 0.3%. It's set at 0.3% in the UK. Nobody has explained to me why uh, the uh, cap in Ireland is higher. Uh, for every um, 0.25% uh, of a charge that is actually placed on your um, pension pot, uh, that reduces your final pension pot by 5%. Uh, so when, when you do ultimately retire, that has an impact on you. This is welcome in principle, it's something we've been calling for for a long time. It was due to come in in 2021 previous government delayed it, it's now coming in in 2024. I think we have a lot more to understand about how this is going to work, but generally speaking, it is a good thing because people need to be able to provide for themselves 
uh, after their working lives. Mm. But also, this has to be complementary, Michael, to the state pension and not in oh. place of <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Let's hope that there's no question about that. Jed Nash, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Jed Nash is the Labour Party spokesperson on finance and a TD for Louth and Eastmeath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it was expected that the British government would introduce cultural and language legislation under the New Decade New Approach deal, which would include an office of identity and cultural expression to promote respect for diversity. It would include an Irish language commissioner and a commissioner to develop language arts and literature associated with Ulster Scots and the Ulster British tradition. Uh, But uh, I think uh, that now that uh, the uh, British government has uh, decided that it has been too busy before Stormont dissolved. It is now saying that it can't do it because it wouldn't be right to do it during an election campaign. You know, the Irish Language Act, there have been numerous commitments at this stage. The Secretary of State did commit to Sinn Féin that he would bring it in in the Westminster Parliament. It's, in my view, that promise should be fulfilled. Uh, because when agreements are made, agreements should be honoured. Well, not this time around, it seems. That's the Taoiseach speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Julian Despawn, the Ord Rooney of Conran Gaelic is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Julian, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is a, a great disappointment, no doubt. Yeah, good morning, Michael, for having me on. Um, yeah, it is a, it's a great disappointment, and it's... And something that, to our to our to ourselves, who are uh, have been campaigning on this for a number of years now, um, and after getting the British government to say that they would do this in Westminster during this mandate, for them to turn around and say now we can't do it, it's too late, and they're not going to do it at this stage. You know, it's it doesn't make sense to us because they had the opportunity um, since June is when uh, when they actually promised to bring it through Westminster. They've had the opportunity since June to bring it in. The, the legislation is already written. It was written as part of the new decade, new approach agreement. So it's been there since January 2020. So in many respects, there's no reason why they didn't bring it through Westminster, except for that it must be political calculations they're using. And they're denying, I suppose, the Irish speakers and you know, 7,000 um, kids you know, in, in Gwaleskull in, in the north of Ireland at the moment, and many others with an interest in the language, denying them the opportunity mm. you know, to have their language recognised officially, um, which is you know, it's a disappointment. And you believe it is a political calculation, don't you? In your statement, you said uh, that it falls in line with uh, British policy, a three-century-old penal law banning Irish in courts. Uh, And indeed, you described it as deceit on the part of uh, the British government and an incredible insult to all of us. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it in in the UK system, you know, in Scotland, they have a language legislation there. In Wales, they have a number of um, um, acts at this stage that have been put through um, and the first one went through Westminster as well. Um, so you see this, you know, that there should be no reason why we have legislation in the south of Ireland. They've brought, you know, Irish has just been recognised as an official language of the EU without any derogation in the European Union lately as well. So, you know, when people, people should be you know, celebrating languages and encouraging language use, um, there's many, many advantages to that and we see this, you know, that you know, in the north of Ireland, the DUP, um, who agreed the North and the NDNA agreement, um, reneged on what they agreed to. And that's when the um, Secretary of State stepped in and said, well, we'll do it in Westminster. Then he didn't do it. 
Um, you know, so, mm. you know, who are you going to believe into the future? You know, how is this going to actually be done? Um, it doesn't make sense. Well, maybe, so you'd, not- maybe you'd care to try and answer that question yourself, uh, because there is a question mark over power sharing now. And if uh, the assembly uh, will be restored yeah, definitely. And w- this was one of the main issues that actually led, well, that was that came about, came to the fore during the um, when the assembly was down the last time, um, and it's something very much that was brought up by the politicians. And it's important to say that a, a majority of the MLAs are in favour of this legislation, and a majority of the parties are as well. Um, and you know, in any other type of parliamentary democracy, you know, if the majority in favour, it should be going through. But because of the way it's the the, the, the North is um, set up, that that didn't happen. Um, so there are elections coming up again. This is going to become an election issue, something that shouldn't be. We're mm. saying always that the language should be depoliticised. It was good to hear Neil Martin talking about this, you know, Taoiseach yesterday in the Dáil. But I suppose that the question is, what will the Irish government do on this? Um, you know, Simon Coveney was very helpful in this when the NDNA agreement was being put together. But over the last two years, we haven't heard much from the Irish government on on what they can do to put pressure on the British government to make sure that they fulfil the promise that they gave. Mm. Uh, If Stormont is not restored, if the Assembly is not restored, uh, does it go back to Westminster if it's to happen at all because of the protocol and indeed as to whether the DUP would elect a Sinn Féin First Minister? Does quite the possibility that power sharing has ended for some time to come at least in Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's always hard to gauge, isn't it, um, what's going to happen in the north of Ireland when it comes to the power sharing. Um, the, I saw Brandon Lewis when he um, said that he wouldn't be bringing this through during the mandate which he had promised um, did say that it's still the intention that they bring it through in Westminster. Um, so, you know, I mean, if that's going to happen we don't know, um, but, you know, it could happen if we can I suppose put enough pressure on the British government to do that and I suppose the Irish government would be very much key to that but also you know you'll have the community in the north and um, we had a number of actions in, in, in London itself there's a, a very strong Irish community there that are very active on this issue as well so you know we'll continue to put pressure we'll continue to push this um, but it's, as you say, you know, just very disappointed that you know mm-hmm. that he didn't fulfil a promise that he gave, and very much it's it's for you know it's for those people that you know have and and sorry, just when you talk yeah. about commitments, this is a commitment that was actually given by the British government in two thousand and six. So this is a, a outstanding for a long, long time now from mm-hmm. the British government, um, and yet again they're given another delay. Yeah, and agreed to, wasn't it, by the DUP? It was agreed to do by DUP there and, you know, mm. they um, were to bring it forward and um, Edwin Poots, I suppose, lost his um, um, leadership of the party. This is party par- um, wrapped up in that as well in the way that some of the DUP just seem to have to, can't, can't get their head around, you know, mm. um, just giving people the um, rights that, you know, are shared um, all across these islands. Um, I mean, you think about it, what legislation will, will do more than anything else, you know, will it, it will you know, have the ability for people to access state services through Irish gradually, uh, a number of those services, but it doesn't take away any service and change it, you know, from from it being available in English. So, you know, you're not really affecting, and if this legislation was to go through, you're not actually really going to make any difference to a person who doesn't want to use Irish, but mm. it does enable somebody who does want to use Irish. So, you know, we can't see why people would have a problem with that. It happens in Wales, it happens in Scotland happens in many other countries around the world why why, why can't we do it in the, in the six counties okay well I don't think anything will be done until at least after the elections uh, Julian uh, yeah. but that's where we are uh, 
for the moment. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning, Julian Despan Ord Rooney of Conra Nagelica. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, last year uh, we spent, as a country that is, uh, between 90 and 100 million euro cleaning up after illegal dumping. It's a lot of money, isn't it? What would you do with 100 million euro? Well, I'm sure local councils across the country would have a long list uh, that they'd be able to tick off as being done if they had 100 million euro available to them instead of spending it on illegal dumping. Uh, this figure, by the way, comes uh, from Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne, who's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, one of the problems has been that local authorities stopped using cameras, uh, CCTV, uh, and you've brought forward legislation and you've been campaigning on this. Uh, you came up uh, with uh, this figure of €100 million Euro by surveying uh, the local uh, authorities. Uh, and uh, you believe uh, that there is a solution in sight at this stage? Uh, well, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. And I know we've we've talked about this issue before, uh, and I know for uh, councillors in Louthan Meath and for Tidy Towns groups uh, and for others uh, who've been very active uh, on this issue, it's been a cause of great frustration because not alone is there obviously that huge cost um, in terms of the, the, the clean-up costs. There's the environmental damage that it causes. Uh, illegal dumping can also be hazardous to uh, to animals and, and to livestock. And, and, and people know that it has been a scourge. So I have been pushing legislation uh, around allowing local authorities to use CCTV and other technologies to be able to catch these illegal dumpers. There isn't actually a bar uh, on the local authorities doing it at the moment. But the difficulty is is that because there is no underpinning legislation, local authorities have to be very careful to ensure that they adhere to all of the necessary uh, data protection rules. Um, so, so my bill was progressing through the Shannon. What the government has agreed to do is to fold my bill into a new bill which has been published today, um, the Circular Economy Bill. Uh, that's a bigger bill that mm. deals with a number of things, including, for instance, um, measures to encourage recycling. We're going to be talking about kind of a levy on uh, those plastic cups, plastic coffee cups, and 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 so on. Um, but the uh, the thing that I'm particularly welcoming is that we will now have legislation underpinning the use of CCTV uh, that local authorities can roll out uh, to catch those who are involved in illegal dumping. And as far as I'm concerned, those who are involved in legal dumping, not alone should they, they be fined, mm. but those who are consistently found to be involved in this environmental crime, uh, they deserve to be jailed. Right. Uh, and as you say, your belief is uh, that uh, there has been no barn local authorities using cameras uh, for this purpose up to now. Uh, and that vindicates your position because uh, I think when we did speak the last time, I was saying to you, well, what about GDPR? Is it not in breach of uh, that European legislation to use these cameras? Uh, you believe that that wasn't the case. That, I think, was the fear to some degree. Uh, but I, I take it government uh, agrees with your opinion on this, given that they're encompassing it in uh, this new bill that's being published today. Yeah, well, the, the, the problem had been because there was no underpinning legislation uh, it meant that local authorities could be, and in many cases were, tripped up where they, they didn't have the necessary data protection uh, regime in place. Um, what this legislation uh, will uh, allow us to do is to ensure uh, that the data that is gathered um, by 
CCTV or by drones or indeed by other technology, mm. um, that it can only be used for the purpose of catching illegal dumping. The fear was always, and some local authorities were caught out for this, by this was where the CCTV was kind of used for surveillance purposes rather than anything else. You you cannot use it for those purposes. Uh, so in the same way, for instance, that in a number of our communities, uh, we have CCTV in place uh, and it can only be used when, let's say, that, that, that a crime has been committed and the CCTV, the, the evidence can be gathered, the data can be gathered from that to be used as evidence but it can only be used purely for the purpose of catching a crime. Similarly, as you know, we've legislation that underpins the use of gatso vans on our roads uh, to catch speeding. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it can only be used for that purpose. So what we will now have is with this legislation, local authorities will be able to use the CCTV. I've been given assurances by the minister's officials Um, But the plan is that this will be enacted by the summer. I'm also looking for resources to be allocated to local authorities, including now the Meath uh, County Council, so that they can roll this out. Uh, Because I'm I'm, I'm pretty certain if you talk to, and I I know you'll have got calls on it, you're probably getting calls on it now, around beauty spots around the country, uh, and it's not just in rural areas, it's in urban areas as well, uh, where we see a small number of individuals who have no civic pride, who just don't care and who just dump. We've got to equip every local authority uh, with the possibility to catch these people. Okay. And by using technology, that, that can happen. And when you talk about crimes being committed, it sounds very serious. And it is pretty serious, as you describe it, when beauty spots and scenic areas are destroyed by tip flying uh, and uh, whatever it is, whether it's mattresses or um, white goods that are, are left there. Uh, but when... Yeah, the councils were using cameras on bottle banks, for example. Uh, we'd have got calls from people who were very upset to have realised that they'd been fined because they got to the bottle bank and it was full. They left the bottles at the side of the bottle bank or they emptied the bottles into the bottle bank uh, and then had a dirty bag and nowhere to put it and left it beside the bottle bank. Uh, and that was considered to be a crime, if you like, but uh, certainly was considered to be illegal dumping and resulted in a fine. Well, I, I, you know, I think I think that's you know a different circumstance, and the issue there is around you know how regularly bottle banks uh, get emptied. Mm. And I know where I'm from in Wexford, this has been a, a similar problem, uh, and we applied pressure for the council to ensure uh, that those who are managing the bottle banks that they were empty more often, because in those in those circumstances, and I'm inclined to agree with your listeners, your listeners are trying to do the right thing. Uh, they come along to the bottle banks, and, and all they want to do is is to leave their class and so on there for recycling uh, and, and the bottle banks are full. Uh, what I, 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 you know, where the real target has to be is those who are going and dumping mattresses and mm. white goods uh, in in urban and rural areas. And, and, and to just get an idea of, of the crime, you've got to remember that if some of the substances in white goods, for instance, in, in fridges and the like, leak into the soil, mm. um, that can potentially contaminate the soil. Um, if animals and livestock and farmers will tell you this, uh, you know, if 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 a, an animal, if a cow goes uh, and starts uh, to eat or consume some of the rubbish uh, that has been dumped, that is potentially hazardous. In some cases, uh, there have been fatalities. Mm. So these these are environmental crimes, yeah, and they and are criminal acts. Uh, but uh, you're always going to have concern about the use of drones. I, 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 I agree, but uh, the, the key element here is that 
any of the data that is gathered, it can only be used, and this is the thing about GDPR, the data can be only be used for the purposes for which it's in, intended. So in other words, um, the data can only be used for where somebody has been involved in the commission of an unlawful act, i.e. dumping uh, in our communities. Mm. It, it cannot be used for kind of monitoring or surveillance purposes or anything like that. Mm. Um, and, how do you tell one drone from another, though? How, how do you know if it's not uh, your local burglar or your county well, council? Well, that is. Well, I mean, that is. A, it is an offence to use a drone, obviously, mm. for the purpose of trying. To, is it an offence to, to shoot them drone? down? Because people will tell you they'll shoot them down so that their house isn't <laughs> broken into. Well, 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 well. I, well, I that it is in terms of uh, you know because you you can technically, you know, be trespassing into somebody's airspace if you fly a zone over somebody's uh, garden. And and clearly, somebody who is using a drone for the purposes of, you know, looking to commit a crime, that's entirely different for where, from where a local authority mm. uses technology uh, in order to gather data purely to provide evidence. Yeah, uh, but, but how do you know one from the other? Uh, I mean, will you be in trouble if you shoot down the drone thinking it's the burglar's drone and it turns out to be the council's drone? Yeah, I, I, I think that's 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 probably an interesting uh, an interesting point, Mike. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. It will certainly be an offence uh, to interfere with, you know, if, if there's fixed or mobile CCTV. Um, so if there's, you know, CCTV has been erected on a, you know, known beauty spot, to try to prevent dumping, and you try to interfere with that, that will certainly be an offence. Yeah. No different, for instance, to, you know, if you try to interfere with the Gatso van, uh, mm. which is designed to catch somebody speeding. No, no doubt these things will be ironed out uh, in time, uh, but it's a step in the right direction, a very positive step in the right direction, I think, for anybody who's concerned about illegal dumping and the impact that it has on the environment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Much appreciated. That's Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. A lot of people are struggling. A lot of sectors are struggling, but it would seem none more so than pig farmers in this country. The uh, Irish Farmers Association is calling for a rescue package of €100 million for pig farmers, uh, which they say the producers would pay back half of from sales over the course of uh, the next 15 years. A lot of farmers, the IFA says, have gone out of business. Others are suspending production, which is not terribly surprising when you Consider that losses over the last 18 months are estimated to be at 160 million euro. Farmers currently losing 56,000 a month. That loss is expected to increase to 71,000 next month for individual farmers. And uh, the IFA held a protest outside of uh, Dáil Éireann yesterday. If you care to see them, please, they're outside protesting. They're not known to protest, but their family lives and their incomes and that of their industry is on the line. And the party seven million offered by you, Minister for Agriculture, is an insult to them. They need a package of 50 million and a further 50 that they intend to pay back. What other group in society has paid back money they got from COVID support? So it's a crisis that you don't seem to recognise. I mean, some kind of won't recognise, only you won't have any uh, any rations for your for your for your breakfast roll. No, no, no. 
Yes. By saying he, no, he, 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 I didn't hear the deputy facing an industry, an island that could be wiped out if he doesn't act. And this mockery, this mockery by the teacher and poached eggs, he'll be well poached when they get at him. I actually said we should have the rasher with the poached egg, or the poached egg with the rasher. I mean, I wasn't joking, I'm serious. I believe in a good rasher for breakfast. And But what I'd say to you is this, that the Minister of Agriculture is very alive to the issue. We've already allocated funding to the big meat industry. We wanted to, just as we did in relation to COVID-19 and had an awful lot of enterprises survive by investing in those enterprises, we also want to keep a very viable industry, which is the big meat industry, intact and viable. Because it is, in normal times, it's a productive industry that does well. Um, so the minister is engaging with the sector to see if we can do more in respect of what already has been done in respect of this industry, creates a lot of jobs. What's happening now is beyond its control in respect to a disruptive market situation plus, plus to the Ukraine. So uh, the Minister is working on that. That's the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, responding uh, to independent Matty McGrath, the doll yesterday. The IFA President, uh, Tim Cullinan, is on the line. And good morning to you, Tim. Thanks uh, for joining us. So we heard Matty McGrath say that the Taoiseach is mocking pig farmers. Uh, but the Taoiseach did say that the government is intent on keeping a viable industry intact and viable for that matter. Do you take any encouragement from that? Good morning, Michael, and uh, just listening to the clip you played there and the Taoiseach was saying you know, he'd like to have a rasher with his egg. But you know, what's very important here is you know, that uh, a lot of the pig meat that we produce here is sold on the domestic or the home market. And if we don't get this intervention immediately from the government, the, the Taoiseach and everybody else won't be able to get an Irish rasher for their breakfast. But look, um, absolutely. Were the those common sell judge, do you think? Given the crisis that your members are in, uh, was it uh, inappropriate of uh, the Taoiseach uh, to make light of it? Look, um, so we, we hear these jibes in the doll every day. And look, um, this is, look, maybe the were, but look, this is, I had 300 people involved in the industry on Kildare Street yesterday. And, you know, the frustration and the worry of those farmers, will they be able to survive? And, you know, you highlighted it yourself there, the substantial losses that farmers are incurring at the moment. And I suppose, look, if you look at there's a number of reasons why this has happened. Like, we have dealt with Brexit, we had to deal with COVID, and obviously, you know, the Ukraine war, the massive displacement of uh, grain coming into Europe is, is all impacting on this sector. But, like, the losses are massive. And, you know, we, we had a meeting on the back of the protest yesterday. The minister agreed with his officials to meet with ourselves last night. Uh, we were in the building until, I think, close to 12 o'clock last night. And, um, you know, where we're at on this one is there is an acknowledgement from the minister and from his officials that this is very, very serious. And if there's not intervention, we're going to lose anything up to 30% of the producers right across the country. Mm. Already, as you said, you know, there's... there's over 10,000 sows farmers have given up on, on those sows in, in producing pig meat going forward and look where we arrived last night is our people are back in there this evening going through the technical issues to around because this is a unique um, package that we're looking for you know, our farmers are so serious about maintaining this sector they're willing to put their own money forward albeit we have to seek a loan from the government and will sign up 
to uh, a statutory levy, you know, which is a, a government mm-hmm. levy, which means that the farmers will pay this back over a period of 15 years. Yeah. And and we're asking, the, the other ask then is that the government will co-fund this. And like, like what was said there in the clip as well, the government did protect numerous industries during the COVID period and look we're in, in a dire situation here now and it's imperative that the government comes forward it, clear, it clearly is dire uh, but the gap between what the government believes it can do to help uh, and what you say you need is extraordinary uh, because the government has been offering 7 million uh, and you say 100 million is needed yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm basing those losses on figures that have been compiled by Chagas, you know, which is a state state agency. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it, the average uh, family farm size in, in pig production today is 600,000. And, you know, at the moment, that farm is incurring losses of in excess of 50 euros, or sorry, 50,000 euros per month, which is going to increase anything up to 70,000 because of you know, the Ukraine uh, war has impacted further on the price of feed and pig farmers are facing next Friday a further uh, substantial increase in the price of feed. And you know, feed is 70% of the cost of production on a, on a pig farm. So this is uh, a very serious situation. Mm-hmm. And you know, just move outside of, of the pig farm itself. This is an industry that there's 8,000 people employed up and downstream outside of the farm gate. And you know, if... Um, an international company was coming into Ireland in the morning and setting up uh, an industry that was going to employ 8,000 people. You can imagine, Michael, the 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 denies that would be made about that by our political system. So look, we're in, it's the first time ever in the history of the pig sector that we have come knocking on the door of, of the government to, to give us a, a dig out on this one. And you know, it has to happen, or if it doesn't happen, we're definitely going to lose 30% of the industry. And what happens then is the sector will become unviable and will be the, the end of the pig sector as we know it in Ireland unless we get this intervention from them. And what's your sense of it, uh, Tim? Because as you say, you met with Charlie McConnellogue uh, last night. Did the Minister leave you with the impression that that £7 million, uh, that has been offered to the sector will be increased, uh, whether that gets close to £100 million or, or, or not, but that it will be increased somewhat? Yeah, look, obviously uh, we are in the negotiations there at the moment and um, uh, look, um, he, what I can say is he himself and his officials acknowledges how serious the situation is and, you know, and there's a lot of technical issues because you know, what we're looking at here is a loan and a direct aid intervention from the government. So as I say, our people are back in there this evening. We will know in the days ahead you know, where this is going. But I know one thing, you know, we, we cannot back away from this we have to get a decent intervention from the government to protect the sector, Michael. And no, that's where it's at at the moment. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, that's uh, the president of the Irish Farmers Association, Tim Cullinan. Now, thanks uh, to Theresa Riley, who's been emailing uh, the programme. Theresa says she'd be worried about uh, the suggestion we heard uh, from Labour's Jed Nash in uh, the programme earlier about building semi-permanent housing for Ukrainian refugees, as knowing this country, uh, these would most likely become permanent housing units for old people uh, and uh, for people who aren't able to afford their rents. And uh, I think that uh, Theresa would be worried that people would end up in inappropriate housing as a result. 
housing that was meant to be short term that would end up long term. James and Cullen says listening in about accommodating refugees and possibly putting them into tents. There's actually a couple of hotels which are, are not open to the public uh, that I know of in this area. One in Bettystown and the West Court Hotel in Drada. Could they not be used? Putting people into tents I think should be avoided at all costs. Surely we can do better. You wouldn't like to be in one especially in the winter months. Has to be something better than this. James says. Thanks uh, James. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that uh, but we do know that the Department of Housing has asked every local authority in the country to come up with vacant properties of any sort that can be used Uh, and we have asked uh, Mead County Council and Louth County Council uh, to uh, give us some information on what they have been offering to the department Uh, we've asked I think long over a week ago uh, and I know that the councils are working on those responses for us I'm not sure where they're at in terms of responding uh, to the department Uh, but Anne Indrahada says it is a concern Uh, to her how we are going to accommodate all of the refugees who are expected to come here as it is. We have a significant homeless problem with people on waiting lists for years and years for social housing. Uh, Yeah, 10,000, isn't it? Uh, And that's where the mind boggles. Uh, 10,000 people on social housing lists and we're going to take in 200,000 people. It really is a a huge challenge. Uh, But Anne says she's aghast at the thought of these poor people having to live in tents after fleeing a war, but there's no easy answer. How long would they have to live in these tents? And I'd question the location of Gormanston Camp because of it being in the middle of nowhere. They would be very isolated. Thank you indeed uh, for that, Anne. Um, I think there's also a question about... I don't know, uh, it, it being beside Mosny. I, 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 I just think that it's next door to Mosny, uh, which is uh, a direct provision camp uh, for asylum seekers. Uh, people coming here from Ukraine are not meant to be seen in, in the same light. Uh, and I'm not sure how we're all going to be in months and weeks and possibly years to come. Uh, to our new residents in this country. Paddy and Kel says he doesn't think we should be taking in so many refugees from Ukraine. He says we're taking in more than France or the UK and many other EU countries yet where the small... I don't think you're right there, Paddy. I think that that's the basis that it's done pro rata. He says it's disgraceful. We should uh, take some in, all right, uh, but 100,000... Uh, too much he says it should be only 10,000 and he says we'd uh, be better off uh, taking a small few and providing well for them than a large number and not being able to provide for them it should also be remembered that we cannot provide housing for our citizens as it is fair enough Paddy but what do you do do you leave them in Ukraine or do you send them to Moldova? There's, there's, there's nowhere to walk in Moldova, there's so many people. Or Poland. There's two million refugees in Poland at the moment. Where do people go? Do you send them back into the bombs and the bullets and so on? And that is the dilemma that we all have to weigh up in our minds when we look at all of this. But thank you indeed uh, to everybody who has uh, been in touch and sharing their thoughts with us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, the Central Statistics Office published uh, the crime stats uh, for uh, the last uh, quarter of last year yesterday, and sexual offences were up by twelve percent. Bigger pardon by twelve percent. Uh, let's speak to Nolene Blackwell, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. A very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the program this morning. I, I take it there's no great surprise in that increase of twelve percent because it, it just puts us back to where we were. Uh, before the COVID lockdown. That's right. 
That's right. If you ignore last year, Michael, and if you take, say, the increase over 2019, it's an increase of about 3%. So last year, the year of of the restrictions, uh, the numbers went down significantly for the first time in several years. Uh, but they're back up now a little bit more than they were in 2019, rising slowly by about 2 or 3% every year. And it just, it, I mean, it is one of the things that is kind of... We knew in our hearts, but we Mm. didn't actually have evidence to show it before. And that is the reality of reporting sexual violence is that people report it later. You know, people report physical violence more on the spot. Um, Our colleagues working across the domestic violence organisations saw a sort of an immediate peak at the height of the restrictions we didn't, in truth. We saw very upset people. We saw people with great need, but we didn't see a spike until restrictions eased. It's one of those things that people find hard to talk about and find hard to report. Find, you know, you, literally, it's hard to, to say mm. that something like this has happened to you. And what we have certainly noticed, and again, we'll have to wait and see over time whether this is borne out in the figures, but I, I think the Gardaí are seeing a lot of reporting of what you would call older abuse, abuse that hasn't happened in, in the very recent past. Where adults, for example, are reporting child sexual abuse. And we would have seen yeah. a, a lot of reports like that when some of uh, the revelations uh, were made public uh, about clerical child sexual abuse and that type of thing Uh, and people's memories were prompted and uh, then they felt disturbed and came forward and made reports and sought help for that matter. Yeah, yeah. So, so there is, so there is maybe that coming into it as well. But in fact, this is just a recognition in some ways, and actually just digging down into the figures a Mm. little bit. What, what I find interesting (coughs) is that even though the numbers are still very small. They're far too small, given the level of sexual offences that are out there. But but what, where the biggest increase has come, there's a 19.3% increase in the number of um, sexual assault, not um, specifically rape, mm. not specifically aggravated sexual assault. But I think there is that kind of tendency right now that people begin to recognise that if they are sexually assaulted, it is something that they're entitled to complain about. And take a moment there, Nolene. Yes, I yes. think I think you've a frog. Sorry. No, I think you've a frog in your throat. Uh, I actually be, I've been looking at the uh, figures, uh, and it, it's interesting because um, from 2019 to 2020, uh, the figures dropped by 10.6 percent, and they're up 12 percent now, uh, which is because of the lockdown and perhaps uh, the type of assaults that you're talking about uh, weren't happening because people weren't out and about in uh, public places and in discos or wherever the case may be, meeting other people. Uh, But what that means is there were 364 more cases uh, for the end of 21 than would have been the case in 2020. And I I look back over the years and it actually is very, very interesting when you go back over time because the change between between 2019 and 2018 was 125 more cases than would have been the case, a 3.9% increase. Between 2018 and 2017, 298 more cases had been reported, which was 
0.3% more sexual offences uh, reported uh, than uh, the previous year. 16.9% uh, between 2017 and 2016. That's an extra 425 cases. There were a number of years where there were no crime stats from the CSO because they had all sorts of problems with them. Uh, but if you go and look at uh, 12 and 11, there was a 45% increase. No, sorry, I beg your pardon, 45 more cases, a 2% uh, increase. Uh, but between 2007 and 2011, there was a 49% increase. Uh, the number of cases being reported all of the time have been increasing dramatically over the years. Is that, do you think, because people are more willing to report it or because there's more sexual offences? And and again, that's a question of maybe it's one and maybe it's the other, but there's a third element when you look back there as well, and that is, Michael, that the figures weren't reliable back then. Uh, the way that the Gardaí were reporting them, uh, that's why the CSO stopped collecting them. Yeah. <clears throat> Because they weren't reliable and, um, and and how the guards were reporting these things has changed so much in recent years as well. While there is still a long way to go, m- mo- a lot more Gardaí are conscious of how to accept a complaint of a sexual offence in a way that they were not before. We've put in place specialist units now in every single Garda division. They're only in place in the last couple of years. So there's there's a possibility. So the, so the reality is, I don't think we can do a straight comparison between 10 years ago and now. We have to look at the CSO re, really literally said, we're not publishing your figures on this. And they're still publishing them under reservation. So they're still not happy about the Garda systems for collection of the information but but they're improving all the time Mm. and the Garda investigation methods are improving all the time they're recognising sexual offences more I mean there are still people who are saying I did not get a good reception when I went into a Garda station to report the fact that I was sexually assaulted but we're hearing it less than we did And, and, and the other thing we don't have what we what we really lack to answer your question is, is sexual, are sexual offences increasing or are more people prepared to talk about them? What we really lack is a good objective standard of the prevalence of sexual violence in Ireland. Okay, and well, we won't have that for another two yeah. years. The CSO has started uh, a new survey, which will come out in maybe twenty, the end of twenty three, maybe twenty twenty four. That will be the first um, measurement we will have had for over twenty years. Mm. So what we're doing is we're doing our best to hope that it is at least that the gradual increase in complaints is consistent with more people recognizing that it is not their fault if they're sexually assaulted. And that's the important message. And that someone must be stopped doing it to them again or to somebody else. Okay, that was the savvy report in the 1990s, wasn't it? Uh, Which. Two thousand and two. It was in this century, but just mm. about, and it was before life changed so much with the digital age. And it's the only way yeah. that you'll get a, a real picture uh, because there's many people who won't report uh, the assault to the Gardaí. There's many people who won't talk about it without exactly. that type of research. People can always talk uh, about it and uh, many people will feel the need to talk about it or wish they could find someone to talk to about it and the Dublin Rape Crisis has a 24-hour helpline 1-800-77-88-88 and we'll report that in a moment. 
what do you think is uh, the difference uh, between somebody who comes forward after being abused or assaulted 20 or 30 years ago or whatever the case may be, the type of people you were talking about earlier and the impact that it is having on somebody who was assaulted recently. Is there a difference in terms of the need to talk about it? Because it's difficult to understand if somebody was assaulted all of those years ago and uh, quite often you hear them say that they forgot about it but then suddenly it's a crisis situation. Why is that? Can you explain that? Yeah, so so that is um, th- that again just goes to a better understanding that we're getting the whole time about the impact of severe trauma on memory and on mind, and um, it is it is also true to say I think that uh, a, a lot of people were told a long time ago if they did mention something that uh, they were. T- to not talk about it, that they were to put it away, that they were not to be disruptive, that they were not to mention it because what they were saying reflected badly on somebody else in the society. The reality of the trauma of sexual violence is that so much of it is on the interior. You don't see the broken arm or the bruised eye. You, this is just something that happens to somebody innately in the middle of themselves. Children, for instance, literally don't have the language. They don't understand what has happened. Um, the abuse that happens very often involves grooming and a way of telling them that they are to blame. So there are so many reasons why this can be locked away because of shock, because of trauma, because of societal pressure, uh, because of, of the way in which people felt ashamed of themselves for being abused. And, and is it, it, is it that, why, getting, sorry, Nolan, sorry. Why, why do they feel ashamed? Uh, is it that they'd be ashamed if somebody found out what they did? despite it having been done to them, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, well, well, I, I think, Michael, we all helped to make people who were victims of sexual violence feel ashamed. We still do. But, I mean, today, people will phone us up um, who have been abused either recently or behind, and they will say, I, I wonder what I did to bring it on myself. Mm. Because still so many people are asked when they report that they were sexually assaulted, what did you do? What, mm. what, how were you dressed? Um, how did you provoke that on yourself? So society has helped to be part of that. Also, abuse is abuse, Michael, and abusers will make it clear that it is their entitlement and that it is the victim of the abuse who is to blame. It's a kind of a classic abuse tactic. It happens in bullying. It happens in other forms of violence and coercion. And it happens in sexual abuse. So we, we are only, I think, we are only literally outing that in the public, in conversations like you and, are, and I are having right now, where we are reminding people that there is no circumstance in the world in which somebody is responsible for being sexually abused uh, and and nobody should accept any blame on themselves for it but we have to keep reminding okay. ourselves and actually people have to feel that if they say it it's kind of like you, you mentioned the helpline and you'll give the number mm. I know but like people know when they phone us it's confidential they know they can say it and they know nobody will be judging them in relation to it mm. and again we are not yet I think at a, at a stage where people are necessarily confident that if they say it because normally it's done by somebody known to the person who is abused. 
and people are not confident that if they say it, they won't be blamed for making for making a, a fuss okay. about something. Well, non-judgmental, confidential, free phone, 24 hours a day, professional help available. Just talk to somebody, 1-800-77-8888. That is the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre helpline, 1-800-77-8888. Nolan, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Morning. That's Nolan Blackwell, who's Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. As you know, plans to reform uh, the Leaving Cert were announced yesterday. Um, we're looking at our network schools. We're looking at the two new subject areas in theatre, um, uh, drama and film, um, uh, the climate change and sustainability and uh, the three science subjects and the business, uh, a business subject and also Latin, Greek and uh, Arabic. All of those subjects being made available from 2024 in our network schools. That will obviously be for students beginning in fifth year. So that will be fifth and sixth year and then they will complete them within the two years. At that time, there will also be coexisting with that. There will be... Um, a review of that learning so that we're testing, we're trialing, we're adjusting, um, we're improving and we're ultimately succeeding. In the shortest of terms, we're looking at initiatives around, uh, I should also say for the 2024 point, we're looking at the L1 and L2 for special education being implemented and made available at senior cycle for um, children and young people with additional needs for 2024. Um, we're um, also looking at other initiatives in terms of paper one, uh, for Irish in the interim, paper one in Irish and paper one in English being made available uh, at the end of fifth year for students who begin fifth year in uh, 2023. And we're also looking at what we've referenced, this kind of rigid approach that's taken to Leaving Certificate Applied, LCVP and the established Leaving Cert. We're looking at a, a movement, if you like, between those um different programmes beginning this September, where the opportunity will be available to students um, taking LCA to take subjects, most likely maths and an additional foreign language where uh, possible at leaving certificate established level. It's a, a significant reform that is planned. Eamon Dennehy is uh, the president of the ASTI. Good morning to you, Eamon. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, the Minister, Norma Foley, outlining some of uh, the changes planned Oh, my, I beg your pardon. It's Michael Gillespie who's on the line. I beg your pardon. Uh, Michael, good morning to you and thank you indeed. Uh, Michael Gillespie, uh, the General Secretary of uh, the Teachers Union of Ireland, the TUI. My sincere apologies to you, Michael. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, okay, thank you, Michael. Interesting uh, to hear what uh, Minister Norma Foley had to say yesterday about uh, these changes. They are significant. What do you make of them? Well, I suppose from the TUI perspective, we had always supported second components of assessment. Um, And they're not new. For example, a lot of people, if you do music at the moment, you 50% is for performance. We have day practicals in the construction and engineering. So we've already, we've, we've fully support those. And we, we, we see the, the, uh, you know, valid reasons for them to be expanded. Obviously they need to be expanded. We need to examine things that can be examined in a written exam. So there's a lot of work to do to make sure that they are as good as they possibly can be. And that takes investment. We welcome the fact that now every student can get an opportunity to, to, to transition here. We have schools at the moment where there's a, a capacity level and they have to turn people down. So it's a big promise to say every student will be able to do transition here if they want. From next September, the ring fencing of LCA, which was preventing some of our students getting into apprenticeships. Now they can do maths which can help them move into, say, electrical apprenticeships. So we welcome that. But again, the problem is, it's great to say that, 
where the teachers are going to do mm-hmm. this. Because the reason that we couldn't do this up to now was we didn't have enough teachers. And we still are in the middle of a recruitment and retention crisis at post-primary level of teachers. So that we need those resources uh, to be made available. So lots of announcements that we fully support and we can see the positives in them. But at the end of the day, it comes down to resources and investment to be able to achieve this in the schools. Mm, yeah, well, I suppose you preempted uh, that question about uh, resources and indeed teachers available to give transition year in particular to students and indeed uh, class spaces for that matter. Correct, yeah. I mean, it's all about the spaces to do it. Um, and we already have the highest class size in Europe and we're trying to now build on this. We've, we're very successful at the moment in that we have the highest retention levels at, at senior cycle. And that's down to the relationship between the schools, the parents, the teachers, and uh, to keep them in school for as long as possible. Um, and that, that's why we have just such high participation level then at you know, further and higher education. Okay, and uh, this is a significant change in that the Leaving Cert will start for many students in fifth year rather than that uh, written exam at uh, the end of uh, second level. Uh, And there will be some form of uh, assessment. So the Minister says it will be externally moderated. How do you feel about this, though? Well, so the the, the fifth year exams for for Irish and English, uh, there's a lot of detail, you know, you know, are you forcing people into choosing, you know, the level in fifth year? Sometimes that's a bit early for students. You know yourself, fifth year, you may be still only developing. And, and again, it depends on whether you've done transition year or not, how mature you are. So it's very early to decide the level you're doing. So, we, again, we'll need to know the detail of it. Obviously, the, the big thing there is, uh, you know, the TUI does not support. Our teachers don't want to uh, assess their own students. So for the second components of assessment, uh, which are already in existence, are already marked, we want them to be marked by the State Exams Commission. Because that's what, you know, up to the last two years where we did stuff in an emergency where we marked our own students. Mm. Previous to that, the State Exams Commission, no matter what else went wrong in the country, they were beyond reproach. And we have a brand, a leaving cert, um, doesn't matter how we, we create it, whether we bring in these second components of assessment, the fact that it's all got orchestrated by the, set, uh, the State Exams Commission means it can travel anywhere in the world. We don't want to, we don't want to break that uh, at all in any way. So that's why we favour the second components of assessment, which already exist and are already marked by the State Exams Commission. Uh, now they are, they're done by teachers, but they're done by teachers that are not their own teachers, if you know what I mean. Mm. We want to maintain that as a way going forward. Okay, so does that put to bed the Minister's plan? No, no, I mean... So how, how you know, can students be assessed if they're not assessed by their own teachers? Well, but, but we're already... Okay, the State Exams Commission already assesses second components of assessment. Like, teachers go and they, they do the orals, they're doing them over the Easter this year, uh, the, the the day practicals when when the day practical is finished, a teacher from another school comes in and assesses that, but under the under the state exams commission. So we're already doing that. So it's just a matter of expanding that system as we expand more subjects into second components of assessment and additional components of assessment. Okay, this will be welcomed, uh, I gathered, by students. Oh yeah, it, it, as I said, it's an expansion of what's already there. And as I said, the, the fact that there's a minimum of 40%, that means there's meaningful marks for the additional components of assessment. But as I said, we've already got subjects like music where 50% of the marks go for the practical exams. So what we're doing is we're building on what we already have. We, we've already been introducing second components of assessment over the last number of years. The, the controversial thing, I suppose, in it is that 
the minister said yesterday that the teachers will be assessing their own students. That's the bit we don't agree with. Okay. We absolutely agree with every subject having additional components of assessment that are meaningful and that marks or assess something that can be assessed in a written exam. Okay, uh, and therein may lie the problem for the minister if it doesn't put the minister's uh, idea to bed. But do you believe that a solution can be found uh, that will be agreeable to both sides? Yes, there's, like all this requires is resources, and that's what everything, every educational initiative comes down to: is the money available and the willingness to achieve uh, to achieve it there? Because that's all it's going to take. Resources and money. Okay, uh, and more teachers uh, is what you mean by that. Uh, who's going to teach yes. drama, film, and theatre? Uh, have we got the teachers uh, to uh, make those classes available to students? No, not at the moment. We don't have any training for that. Uh, so it's very optimistic to be launching that at the moment um, because we don't have enough teachers as it is in in certain subjects. There's a scarcity across a lot of second level subjects at the moment, and the on top of that, then for the first time ever. Uh, in the last number of years, jobs abroad have become more attractive to our teachers because of the fact that we don't pay our new entrants the same rate as existing teachers. So we have a we have a recruitment and retention pro- problem at post primary. Okay. All right. Well, there's a lot of work to be done. There is some time to do it, uh, but uh, indeed, it will be change of some sort. Uh, what is being planned is very significant. Uh, whether it transpires to be the case or, or not, uh, the interim will uh, decide. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Michael, and, and sincere apologies for the mix-up uh, in introducing you earlier on as well. Uh, no thank problem. You, thank you, as I say. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Glasby is uh, the General Secretary of the TUI, that's the Teachers' Union of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly has said uh, there's hundreds of uh, thousands of uh, cases of COVID every week in this country. There's certainly an awful lot of COVID around. It's everywhere and it's in the nursing homes. It's in over 300 nursing homes, it seems, at this stage. And there is some concern, obviously. Tyg Daly is Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. A very good morning to you, Tyg, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, the disease is not uh, as serious uh, as it was once, obviously, and that uh, is the experience, I think, in nursing homes, despite uh, there being outbreaks again. But undoubtedly, there is concern at this stage. Yeah, I think at the outset, it's important, as you said there, to highlight the fact that, thankfully, residents are not uh, not as sick with, with COVID, uh, and it's absolutely nowhere near what it was in, in, in previous uh, waves of, of the uh, COVID virus, but clearly it is concerning given that you know over 65% of all nursing homes, public, private, and voluntary, at this stage have uh, have a, a, an open outbreak. Um, but the other positive is that the, the numbers of, of residents uh, who are currently infected with COVID is relatively small given the overall numbers. Uh, but it is concerning, and I suppose it's one that we're you know vigilance mm-hmm. is still required. Um, you know we'd be still engaging with our members, uh, updating them on, on HPSC advices. Uh, making sure that I suppose visitors uh, observe all the social distancing measures and all the rest. So, um, you know, we do need to be vigilant over the next while. I suppose our concern is also heightened, if you like, by the fact that public health are suggesting that the wave might be in mid-April. That is, in fact, it may get, get higher over the coming weeks. Um, so that that is obviously concerning from from all our points of view, but yeah. particularly those the residents, you know, who have to isolate if they have mm. contracted COVID, and also from the, the staff. 
uh, who are literally exhausted at this point in time, That's and then true. families as well yeah. concerned about about visits, for example. So yeah, I suppose the homes, though, and the staff are, are well versed in dealing with COVID at this stage, and have a lot of experience from the yes. last couple of years in terms of isolating and PPE and all that sort of uh, thing. Uh, but like all diseases, uh, prevention better than cure, and uh, you're looking for people to wear face masks, and if uh, a fourth jab is deemed appropriate, well, to get the fourth jab into the nursing homes. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two points. One is, as you say, is that, you know, we were a little bit surprised, I suppose, with the the, the mask mandate generally in society. Now, we have to, um, you know, accept that that's the best advice from the public health experts. But what we would say, as we issued a note to our own members at the time, was that for all visitors to nursing homes, they should continue to wear masks throughout the visit. Uh, And as well as that, we would encourage regular visitors or visitors, you know, to limit their social contacts before they come and also to take antigen before they come. Because what we need to do, as you say, prevention is better than cure. What we need to ensure is that COVID doesn't enter the nursing home. And if it does enter, that it's minimised and localised and and, and the the people who are infected, whether residents or staff, uh, are, are, as it were, cocooned into an area. Mm. I suppose the other other element, yeah, as you said, is the the fourth booster. I mean, again, uh, I'm not an expert in this area. You know, we have a a very... um, you know, uh, eminent committee in, in NIAC, the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. Uh, but I think there is broad acceptance that a, another booster will be required at some stage over the, over the next while. Uh, we've seen uh, in other jurisdictions and literally up the road there from you in, 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 in Newry or indeed in Belfast, they are administering uh, the fourth dose to uh, residents in, in long-term, long-term care. So um, I suppose we would expect NIAC to, you know, move quickly in, in making a decision in the first instance. Uh, and secondly, then, that we need to ensure that the, the, the infrastructure and that the, I suppose, the, the scheduling and the administration of the vaccine would happen literally uh, almost immediately once that decision is made. Um, Despite there being less severe illness, I take it there's a lot of stress when COVID gets into a home. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it has a huge uh, effect on everybody within the home, um, more particularly the residents, because if a resident now under the current HPSC guidance contracts COVID, they have to isolate in their own rooms. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, hugely concerning from the point of view of socialisation and resident well-being. Uh, we've seen the effects of COVID. So that's the first impact. And then, as you say, you know, if staff are out, um, you know, it has an impact on, on the, the, the running and the management of the home, obviously. Um, and it, it also puts pressure on the remaining staff, in, you know, who are required to take on extra hours. So, you know, while thankfully uh, the good news, as I say, is that residents are not as sick. Um, and, you know, it's, it's presenting now as maybe a bad cold in, in most cases. But as you say, it, it does have a huge, huge impact uh, on the day-to-day life as it were, within nursing home. And, and uh, you know, the, mm. that's, the, that's the challenge over the next while now is to, you know, continue to suppress it. But when you see, you know, when you see you in your opening remarks there, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases yeah. in the community, I mean, if COVID as it is and in every community at this stage, you know, it, it is inevitable and, uh, that it, it would enter all healthcare settings, uh, hospitals and, and nursing homes. Mm. Can nursing homes uh, implement their own house rules uh, and make it a requirement to wear face masks or something like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, face masks are still required uh, under the under the national guidance when person is coming to the home and is in general areas. Um, what we're saying is that a face mask should be worn for the entirety of the visit. Now, we accept that that can be challenging. You know, if a resident. Uh, you know, has limited capacity or dementia, you know, it is very difficult to communicate with somebody, obviously, with a face mask. But, you know, what we've got to do here is ensure the safety and well-being of the resident 
uh, that the person is visiting and also the other residents because if it's brought into a home, you know, it has the capacity to transmit very quickly to other residents. So, yeah, absolutely, you know, face masks are still required and, and all of our members would still require all, all visitors to continue to wear face masks. And look, it, it is challenging. Um, you know, there may be occasions in the early part of an outbreak, you know, where it may, might take a day or two or three mm. to, I suppose, get control of, of the um, of the virus and, and, and um, you know, that may limit visiting opportunities. But, you know, the last thing anybody wants now, least of all the, the nursing homes and indeed the residents, is, is restrictions on visiting. So, yeah. you know, I'd ask people to be to be patient and work with work with nursing homes and the understanding of the pressure that everybody that everybody is under. Yeah, well, absolutely. Especially when you consider that nursing home residents are in general the most vulnerable or one of the most vulnerable cohorts in relation to COVID. Does this come as a surprise to you that we're dealing with this again? Did you think it was over? Yeah, look, I, I suppose it, it is somewhat of a surprise, but we've known all through, you know, all through the last over two years now at this stage. And every time, you know, we turn the corner, you know, there's something waiting for us. So um, it, has, it has outsmarted us at all times. Mm. Um, I suppose what I am surprised at, really, Michael, is that the, the actual numbers are so high. Mm. Um, you know, we knew we were going to be, uh, you know, to use that phrase, living with COVID for quite some time. I mean, infection control and, and, you know, viruses generally, whether it's the novel virus or the flu, you know, they're, they're a relatively common feature in, in all healthcare settings. So, you know, we were naive thinking that it was over over, but I am, you know, somewhat surprised that the, uh, still the, the high okay. numbers, all to right. be honest. Tag, I have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining Thank us you, this morning. morning. Thank yeah. you. That's uh, Tag Daly, Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFN. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.